Amen. John 15, verses 3 through 11, as we continue our way through what is historically known as Christ's Upper Room Discourse. This is the uh, longest uh, passage of Christ's teaching, even longer than the Sermon on the Mount. Longest consecutive pastor passage of, of Christ's teaching. Um, and it takes place um, at the end of his ministry to his disciples. And so we're spending this year just joining in on that conversation at the feet of Jesus. Beginning in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Word of the Lord. May the Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock, our redeemer. May we see wondrous things from your law. May you open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, cause the paralyzed to leap for joy, raise the dead. These impossible things that we ask that symbolized during your earthly ministry, the work of your spirit in all of our lives, we ask that you would do it and trust that you will do it and are doing it. Be faithful to your promises. Give me strength, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Much to say this week. I want to jump right into the text. But let me remind us very briefly where we are. Last week, what we did was we set up the paradigm for Christian community, which is John 15. Those first two verses uh, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, You need to bear fruit. If you bear fruit, you're true. If you don't, you'll be cut off. Essentially what what we talked about last week. The vine, the branches that are called to bear fruit. And we looked at that extensively. Now look at verse 3. Already you are clean. Now that is not you are clean in the sense of you are are perfected, you are um, sinless. God's done with you. That's not what he's talking about. Clean there. Um, And they would have recognized this. It speaks of um, being set apart. It was the language that was used of Israel. Those who were attached to the vine of Israel were clean. Those who were not were viewed as unclean. And he's saying, already, you're a part of this vine. You are clean. This isn't something that's going to happen. This has already started because of the word that I have spoken to you. Meaning, because you have been with me under my discipleship, Under my words, you are already a part of this vine. So he's really narrowing down to 
his community, his people who um, give themselves to the word of Jesus and are a part of the vine. What does he have to say to them? What does he have to say to us? Abide. You are already a part of the vine. Abide in the vine. And that's where we're looking at extensively this week, this famous passage. Three things. The priority of abiding, the process of abiding, the pleasure of abiding. So priority, process, pleasure. Let's start by seeing how important this is, significant this is, the priority of abiding. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I in the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do, did you pick up on the extreme wording there? Um, that is the main point that he's making. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Neither can you bear fruit by yourself. If the branch is not connected to the vine, it will not bear fruit. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in the vine. You cannot produce fruit unless you abide in him. No wiggle room. Now what this definitive phrasing means for us, and this is important as we get into the fruit discussion, what this means is that a lot of what we typically think of as fruit must not be fruit. Because a lot of what we typically think of as fruit does not require Jesus. Certainly not abiding in Jesus. So what we need to do is reimagine fruitfulness. Let me define it this way. Fruit is that which you cannot self-produce, but only abiding in Jesus can produce. Fruit that John 15 is examining, the wine dresser, as we looked at last week, is looking for. Fruit is not that which you can self-produce, but only that which Jesus can produce by abiding in Jesus. That's the imagery, right? Something that only the vine can produce, something that requires abiding in Jesus. So, for instance, I don't have to abide in Jesus to produce a false humility that you're impressed with. I do have to abide in Jesus to be a humble person. I can't, I can't force that. Jesus has to do that. I don't have to abide to force a generic altruism that all of humanity with conscience does. I do have to abide in Jesus for true self-sacrificing gospel love. I don't have to abide to produce a fake smile and I'm good, everything's good type of phony happiness that we do. How you doing? Good, great, everything's great. I don't have to abide in Jesus to do that. I can fake that. Now I do have to abide in Jesus for true joy in all circumstances. I don't have to abide to produce a cool, calm, collected, under pressure, never let them see a sweat kind of rugged confidence. I can fake that. I do have to abide in Jesus for a peace that transcends all understanding. To rejoice in all circumstances as we are commanded to do. So, do you see the difference? We don't have to abide to produce what we expect from the world. We do have to abide to produce what Jesus expects. 
to use the ethics of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't have to abide to not commit murder. A lot of people who do not abide in Jesus do not commit murder. I can obey that. I do have to abide to have no hatred in my heart toward others, much less my enemies, which is what Jesus expects. And so the point is, is that what we typically think of as fruit is often just good old-fashioned self-produced religious behavior. But what Jesus sees as fruit are those things which only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can produce. Thus, those things which only come by way of abiding. And friends, this is no small thing. It's very serious. Look at this dire warning in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into fire, and burned. Now, the extreme language here is intentional because Jesus is always talking extreme to his community as a way of purging and self-examination, saying, don't say just because I'm in the vine, I'm good. Cheap grace. He's always pushing in against that and say, don't think you can't be cut off. Last week, Jesus said that those who produce no fruit are thrown away. This week, Jesus says those who don't abide in him are thrown away. Do you understand that connection? The fruit that he is looking for is only and exclusively the fruit that the vine can produce. What this means, simply put, is that dead, withered branches that are cut off to us might look like very fruitful branches. Meaning it's not just the really bad people that are cut off, but those who do not produce the fruit that Jesus expects, indeed demands, which happens to only be the fruit that Jesus can work which means abiding in Jesus is central to the, to the Christian faith. It is life and death, heaven and hell important. You have to abide to persevere. And if you do not abide, you will be cut off. And I say that as one who fully subscribes to a reformed view of salvation. Yes, I believe it is by grace alone we are saved. Yes, I believe that um, he who begins a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. Yes, I believe that those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorifies. I, I believe all of those things, you should too. They're quotes from scripture. But so is this. So is this, that you have to abide or you will be cut off. And we have to see those as not a contradiction, and they're not. Those who do not abide in Jesus do not bear fruit, and those who do not bear fruit will be thrown away, and that does not threaten my doctrine of salvation. What it does is clarify it, nuance it, by helping us understand what the true fruit of election looks like. What the true fruit of justification looks like. What the true fruit of sanctification looks like. What the true fruit of God's work within us looks like. And the fruit is not some things that we can self-produce. That we say to prayer sometime in the past. And had emotional experience. That we would identify ourselves as culturally, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. 
that we would perform good religious behavior that any other religion can self-produce. It's not preaching a sermon that anyone with a good intellectual understanding of Scripture along with oratory gifts could self-produce. It's not building a church that anyone with leadership ability who reads the leadership books and takes a church and, and applies those paradigms and voila, you get a big church. That can be self-produced. All of these things can be done without being in Jesus. The fruit is only that which Jesus can produce. Therefore, only comes through abiding in Jesus. What this means is that abiding in Jesus is eternally serious business. It is at the heart of the Christian faith, indeed, authenticating the Christian faith. So if it's that important, we need to ask how. How do we do this? The priority of abiding is now obvious. How? Let's move from priority to process. Process of abiding. Jesus continues the same theme of abiding, but what changes is that he gets more specific about it. That is to say, he goes away from just simply saying, abide in me, I am by you, produce fruit, and he gets a lot more specific, which means that he's telling us what it looks like to abide in him. Okay? Verse 7. If you abide in me, and then listen to this nuance, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So that's the, that's the paradigm there. You bear fruit, it proves to be disciples, but what does that fruit look like? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Do you see how he's getting more specific and nuanced here? Well, in so doing, he is helping us see what all of this abiding talk entails. Now, it's a lot to explore. We could dwell here for a long time, but what I'm going to do uh, for our purposes is just sum it up in three ways. Try to make it as easy as possible. Three ways we abide. We seek, speak, and keep the words of Jesus. Seek, speak, keep. That list certainly isn't exhaustive, but I do think that's what emerges here as you look at the text. Let me show you each of them from the passage. We seek his words. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Did you notice the switch there? It makes sense to say, if you abide in me and I abide in you. That's what he's been saying the entire time. Abide in me, I'll abide in you. But instead he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Well, the point is that his words abiding is him abiding. His words in you is him in you. And we learned previously that he says that everything that I say is all that the Father has said. And we know that when Jesus spoke, he is almost always quoting the Old Testament, alluding to the Old Testament, or helping people reimagine the meaning of the Old Testament. So we should not narrowly interpret my words here as simply those things that show up read in your Bible. My words is all of inspired holy writ. He's talking about your Bible. So yes, this isn't going to be a surprise. Your Bible 
plays a huge role in abiding. Where is Jesus? The most basic answer to that is he is waiting for you in that book. Man, a a common question to pastors or a common complaint is that God is silent. Where is he? Jesus doesn't feel like he's there. I feel his absence. I don't feel his presence. I want to hear from him. I would say, well, then open your Bible and listen to him. And if you say, no, 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 I I, want to hear from him audibly. Okay, then you can read it out loud. So much of our struggle with the lack of God's presence and voice is our neglect of his word. But, and this is why I worded it as seek, we need to redefine how we approach God's word. So much of your struggle with the Bible is we probably need to reimagine how you approach the scriptures, how I approach the scriptures. The reason I'm labeling it as seek the words of Jesus rather than study, for instance, is because approaching the scriptures as something to seek rather than study is very different. Seeking certainly involves study. It's an important part of it. Do your inductive or deductive stuff with the scriptures. Absolutely study them. But that's, that's only part of it. Seek implies Yes, study, but a pursuit, a search, a deep contemplation, an internalization. My wife does not want me to examine her. She wants me to seek her. And that deeper pursuit is what Jesus is saying here when he says, my words abide in you. How intimate is that language? So how do we seek scripture? How do we do do it so that His words literally abide in us, not in our minds, but but in us. Well, I'm going to leave you wanting here. I don't have time to answer that question. There are many good resources out there. Unfortunately, um, a lot of them are outside our tradition because this is something I don't think we do particularly well. Um, We we have good theology, but learning to internalize scripture, um, um, practice, dwell upon all these things, uh, we need the help of, of others Um, And and there are plenty of resources out there, but I'm going to give you one very easy application here, okay? Replace, well, don't replace. Supplement Bible study with Bible memorization. If you have to choose between the two, study your Bible or memorize your Bible, I would ask you to memorize your Bible. The best way to have his words abide in you is to memorize his words so that they cannot leave you. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorization forces pursuit, commitment, discipline, depth, dwelling upon Scripture that no other discipline will do. Memorize. That's how the Scriptures were written to be done. That's how they did it before a a, a written world that we live in, a linguistic world that we live in. They were meant to be internal, heard, read, and memorized. And that deeper pursuit of memorization will prepare you for this next discipline. Not just seek his words, but speak his words. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I'm not going to take the time to explain that often confusing and misinterpreted promise because I already did. We talked about this in John 14 because he's repeating himself. He's already talked this way. And you can go back and listen to that sermon and my explanation of that. But what he is saying here is very simple. 
abiding in him as we just defined by abiding in his word is the preface to a promise. They're connected. He says, if you abide, if you abide in my words, or if my words abide in you, then ask whatever you want and it will be done. Do you know the point that he's making, the connection there? Those who abide in his word will ask in accordance to his words. Those who have those who seek his word and, and, and internalize their word, his word becomes the flavor and informing what we say and ask. We memorize, we contemplate, we dwell, we are so immersed in his words that they become our words. That what we want is what Jesus wants. That what we long to see happen is what Jesus longs to see happen. Therefore, ultimately, what we ask is what Jesus asks. And so he says... Your, my word dwells in you. If you ask, ask whatever and you're going to get it because I know my word dwelling in you will be what I would ask. He will always answer, thy will be done every single time. So the imagery is a people who so abide in scripture that scripture is all we speak. So prayer is obviously an important part of abiding, but just like I redefine scripture, I want to redefine prayer. Prayer is speaking God's word to God. It's not just quoting scripture back to him, though that is a very good way to pray. If you feel stuck, you can just pray the scriptures. That's what the Psalms are. You could pray it to him. But it's more than that. It's that our prayers are informed, saturated, and motivated by the scriptures. This is the type of prayer that yields not just effectiveness, that my prayers work if I do it this way. That's not the point. It's not formulaic here. It yields the abiding presence of God. You'll get whatever you want because what you want is your God. You want in the presence of our triune God, you want to be in his love as we talked about a few weeks ago. What you want is to be in his presence. And, and if you want to do that, that's very simple. Just join the conversation. Join the passions, the purposes, the desires of our triune God. The best way to abide in him is to want what he wants, to think what he thinks, and ultimately to speak what he speaks. Now you may want to ask again, how do you do that? Again, I don't have time to answer. Again, there are a lot of good resources out there on what it looks like to pray the scriptures. The easiest way, though, is to just let your prayer life flow from the Bible. Meditate, memorize, dwell upon his word, and let your prayers flow from that. A really easy way to do that is to pray through the Lord's Prayer. When uh, Luther's, I think it was his barber, um, I can't remember, but somebody, some, some, some random person in Martin Luther's life asked him, teach me how to pray, Martin. He wrote a little small booklet that's just gold. Don't know the name of that either. I bet you're like, please tell us what this is. Just Google this. I don't know. You'll find it. But Luther wrote, and, and essentially all he said is, here's how you pray. Go to the Lord's Prayer and pray it. Our Father. I'm just going to stop. I'm going I'm to thank you for being my Father. I'm going to dwell upon what it means that you are my Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Stop. I'm going to hallow thy name. I'm just going to praise thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Stop. I'm not going to present to you what I want to be done. I am going to ask you to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. 
was praying the scriptures. Doesn't have to be that. It could any part of scripture can be applied through prayer. If if this were our passage in my morning time, which I have uh, been neglecting way too much recently, and this sermon has got me excited to get back into praying the scriptures. If this morning, if this passage were my morning time, you know, I pray for my kids every day. You probably do too. Kids, grandkids, whatever. Here's where I'm convicted because my prayers are essentially, Lord, keep my kids healthy, happy, and successful. And saved. I want them to go to heaven. Okay. What would it look like to dwell upon, abide in me, and then pray for my children? Lord, all I want for those four boys is for them to abide in your presence. Now, success, you might need to break them. Health, they might need a thorn. Whatever it takes, oh God, to drive them back to you, the vine. Whatever it takes for them to abide in you, do it, Lord. It's praying for my children differently, isn't it? Or whatever else is going on. You get the point. How to abide. Seek the words of God, the words of Jesus. Speak the words. Finally, keep the words. Keep his words. Verse 10, you do not get more straightforward than this, people. If you keep my commandments, you will abide. There you go. How do you abide? If you keep my commandments, you will abide. We do not just seek the scriptures. We do not just speak the scriptures. We keep the scriptures. If you memorize the Bible, and if you pray the Bible, but you do not obey the Bible, then do not expect the abiding presence of Jesus. How can I not think of James here, right? This was his, one of his major points. He says, be not hearers of the word only. And when he said that, again, this is their culture, you would hear the word and you memorize the word. So he's like, don't just listen, don't just memorize, be not hearers of the word, be doers of the word. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and, per, and uh, perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing. Don't just hear the word, do the word, and in doing you will be blessed. Now, what is that blessing? It says, in keeping the law of the Lord, there is great reward. What is this great reward? What is this blessing to obedience? Would it be money? No, if anything, it is going to cost you money. He's going to get up in your finances and your generosity. So it's not going, the great reward is not more money. Will it be um, prestige and honor? No. If anything, you abide in Jesus, it is going to make you very unpopular. You're going to start thinking what he thinks and wanting to do what he wants you to do. Will it be success? No. You won't get that. Hedonistically feeding your appetites? No. Doing the word is going to be practicing self-denial. What reward is there in obeying the law of God? God. That's it. You get God. You get the presence of God. You get the abiding presence of God. God is discovered and experienced within the bounds of obedience exclusively. Conversely, he is absent in our disobedience. I love, you know, Tim Keller's a great apologist and he's always battling the 
the, new, the popular new atheisms of our day and stuff like that. But he, he also tells a story of when college students from a Redeemer in the early days, when he, you know, when, when he was meeting with his, his people a lot, he said, you know, the, the high school students would go off to college, they come back and say, Pastor, I just, I, I, I'm losing my faith. I, I, my heart is cold toward God. I, I have so many doubts and, and I don't know what to do. And you'd think Keller would get into the intellectual arguments, but instead he would just say, oh, really, who are you sleeping with? Who are you sleeping with? What are you doing in your private life? What's weekends looking like? And his point is, it, it's not intellectual. It's, let's not, let's not overcomplicate things. Jesus will not join you in your sinful ways. Those who abide in their idols, those who abide in their besetting temptations, those who harbor sin in their hearts are making a decision that they would rather abide in their sin than abide in Jesus. So you can memorize scripture. You can pray scripture, but if you will not repent and obey scripture, then Jesus will feel noticeably absent. And if you persist in disobedience and are unrepentant and are not bearing fruit, you will, as he warns here, be cut off from the presence of Jesus on a more permanent way. And so will the reward of his presence. You will not just forfeit Jesus, you will will forfeit the reward of his presence. We've talked a lot about the consequences of not abiding last week and this week, being cut off and so forth. He closes this section by speaking of the reward of abiding. So let's close with that. We've seen his priority. We've seen his process. Let's just close here by um, celebrating the pleasure of abiding. He ends this way, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now that's interesting. Seemingly out of nowhere in John 15, he switches to the language of joy. He's been talking about abiding in you and you abiding in him. But then he says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He switches to abiding in joy. And of course, the not so subtle point that transition is making is that Jesus views abiding in him as abiding in your joy. Not just any joy. Look at the detail here. That my joy may be in you and that your joy not may be in me, which would would you expect if he's following the paradigm that he's been doing. Instead, he says that your joy may be full. And that is because Jesus believes that his presence is the fullness of joy. Not the only joy, not the exclusive joy, the fullness of joy. Have you ever noticed how fleeting joy joy is? Does anything ever fully meet your expectations? It could be as small as a vacation or as big as your marriage. But nothing ever seems to live up to the joy expectations that we place upon it. There's joy there. There's joy, joy. We experience it, but it's, it's incomplete joy. And even if it does live up to the height, it can't last. Let's say the vacation is, is not just what you expected. It was more than you expected. Incredible. Great. But it did have to come to an end, as does every earthly joy. And this is because the joys of this life are not meant to be full and everlasting. They are meant to be tastes of what is truly full and truly everlasting, the presence of God. 
Jesus is quoting Psalm 1611 here about himself. Psalm 1611 says, Thou hast made known to me the pathway of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's exactly what Jesus says about being in his presence. Abide in me that your joy may be full. Now you may doubt him on that, but you ought to try him on that. And I say that to non-Christians and Christians alike. Those who um, would not consider themselves followers of Jesus and are just investigating him, maybe as a skeptic you're investigating him, or those of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus. I think both of us might, one might be completely doubting, but maybe thinking. Other of us might be thinking, but might have some doubts. But both of us would say we're a little cynical about, really, the presence of Jesus really is our full joy. Is that really true? And I, I, I would just say you ought to give it a try. To those who are not followers of Jesus, how much longer must you give yourself to these fruitless joys before you turn to the one who is the fullness of joy? I mean, how, how, how much longer must the joys of this life fail you before you ever say, maybe those are all foretastes of a greater joy that is right there in front of me and I must seize? To those of you who are Christians, I would say, how much longer must you forget your first love before you return to him? Prodigals come home. I mean, it's not working, is it? You ought to come home. You ought to return to your first love who has shown you again and again that he is the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. I'll say this to all of us, and this is our ultimate motivation. I'll say this. Jesus wants you to abide because Jesus wants you. I mean, this abiding language, this vine branches language, it's incredibly intimate, is it not? The whole theme of this famous passage is a two-sided abiding. Abide in me and I in you. And that goes for joy as well. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus finds joy in you, in you abiding. Jesus gets happy to have you. Jesus is not indifferent in this whole abiding thing. He wants you. He wants to be with you. He wants to abide with you. It breaks his heart to cut off. He wants you. He finds joy in you. Not fullness of joy. He has that in himself. But you make him happy. And you make him happy because he loves you. He wants you to abide because he loves you. This is one part of the passage that I skipped over, glossed over a bit, but I, I, want, I want to return to it as, as our closing. Jesus describes his motivation in all of the abiding talk. Why does he want you to abide? Why does he want to abide? Why the abiding? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The Father has loved me in that same way I love you. That intense, eternal, Trinitarian love. He says, therefore, abide in my love. When Jesus invites us to abide in him, he invites us to abide in his love. The love for which we were made, 
the love that will be for us the fullness of joy we all seek. Let me pray. Lord, we return to you in your presence. We remember the promise of your holy communion. On the same night that you said these words, you also said, take this in remembrance of me, believing that communion is exactly that, that we commune with our God by your spirit. And so, as we partake, we ask that we would abide with you and you would abide with us. I pray for those who have given their lives to lesser joys that they would come to you, the fullness of joy. I pray for your people who are not bearing fruit, who are, who are struggling, who are away. Lord, that they would return, not necessarily from the warning that fear of being cut off, but by the pursuit of love and joy. Or that we would all abide in you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.